The reading is from Psalm 17, and if you want to follow it in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 550, and it should come up on the screens. Yes, it has. Psalm 17. Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my prayer. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed, though people tried to bribe me. I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God. You will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may their leftovers be for their little ones. As for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if possible, you might find it useful to keep your Bibles open at at Psalm 17. I've I've called this evening's talk um, Crying Out and Holding On. And that's because here we find David crying out to God in a life-threatening crisis. These words were most probably written when David was being persecuted by King Saul. King Saul, a jealous, capricious, vindictive, unpredictable ruler was trying to catch and destroy David. And here we find David in hiding um, while the king's soldiers are after him, trying to catch him and kill him. And in, in that situation, David cries out and just holds on. Now, most of us here tonight probably don't know and haven't experienced a life-threatening Situation, But we do, all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, know what it feels like to be pretty desperate, to be in a difficult situation where we can't see a way out, where there's no light at the end of the tunnel, where it's difficult to pray and difficult to even focus on the words of Scripture. All we can do is cry out to God. But take heart. A cry is the most basic and the most effective of prayers. The Bible gives us lots of examples of people simply crying out in the most unlikely 
and hopeless situations and just crying out to God to answer their prayer. And just as loving parents hear the cry of a baby through whatever other noise may be going on, uh, so God hears the cry of his loved ones when they cry out to him in times of distress. There is one word, a one-word prayer that God always hears, I'm told, and that is the word help. So hold on to that thought as we, uh, as we take a moment to pray. God of hope, God of comfort, we come before you once again uh, with, in our needy situations and we ask you, Lord, to open our ears and our hearts to hear anything that you may have to, to say specifically for us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, the book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter, is often called the church's prayer book um, because it, it expresses feelings and emotions that sometimes people put it, find it very hard to put into words. It speaks for us. And the words of Psalm 17, like so many other psalms, are not so much words that we read, but words that read us. They search the heart, and they delve into our thoughts, and they challenge the way we speak, and challenge the way we behave, and show us how to bring our lives into line with God's will for us. Psalm 17 is one of the many psalms in the Psalter where the psalmist simply cries out in pain. So, for instance, in Psalm um, 61, he, he, he pours out his heart with, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the depths of the earth I call out to you, and my heart grows faint. And in Psalm 88, he says, You are my God, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. But notice something that here, these cries for help, in the midst of all these cries for help, the psalmist has his absolute trust and confidence in the goodness of God. David does not merely express a hope that God will hear him, but he, he, he speaks in total confidence and says, God will respond. He says, I will call on you and you will answer me. This is great confidence. And you and I, here tonight, in whatever need we have, are urged to, 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 to devote ourselves to the one who is devoted to us and to approach him with that same confidence and the same confidence in the promises of his word. Furthermore, as Christians, we can expect the shepherding love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to lead us safely, in the words of Psalm 23, through those dark valleys, the dark valleys that we have to go through occasionally in our lives. And can we expect God to answer our prayers? Well, yes, we can, because he knows us and because he, he knows us very well, he knows our needs, he will, however, not always answer us in the way that we want or expect. A man in great financial difficulties cries out to God and he says, Lord, I know that for you 10,000 years is like a minute and 10,000 pounds is like a penny. Please give me a penny. And God says, in a minute. 
But seriously, if you find yourself in a place where there's nowhere to turn except God, then you want to be sure that you're in the best possible place to, uh, for him to hear you and for you to hear him. David knew, as we do, that sin gets in the way of communication with God. Wrong motives, wrong thinking, wrong speaking, dishonest behavior, all these things separate us from him, not to mention other people. David ensures that in the midst of this great crisis he finds himself in, he is coming before God with a clean heart, with a clean mind, with clean lips, and with clean hands. I'd like to take a few moments with you to explore that. Let's begin with the heart. The heart in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible is the, condi- is, is the, the place, is the, the center of our consciousness, center of our, uh, of our being. It is where our decisions are made, our desires uh, come from. And he, he, he prays, he says, search me, O God, search my heart and test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's anything offensive in in me, lead me in the way of everlasting, of your, lead me in the way everlasting. And the Bible, as I said, treats the heart as the center of our thoughts and all our deeds. The heart is the home of our personal life and the seat of our conscience. Where your heart is determines who or what rules your life. What you set your heart on will determine whether you have a clean mind and clean lips and clean hands. When someone asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, he replied, quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. By nature... Our hearts are far from clean. The Bible describes the heart in its natural, unconverted condition as perverse, as deceitful, as wicked, and lacking in love for God. The Psalms describe the human heart in various degrees of separation from God. So there, there are proud hearts and idolatrous hearts and embittered hearts and stubborn hearts, and deluded hearts, and so on. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have those hearts that are in line and attuned to God, and in line with his will, and they're variously described as broken and contrite hearts, uh, pure hearts, clean hearts, steadfast hearts, and upright hearts, and so on. This tells us that it matters to God, it matters to him, where your heart is. Where your heart is, is where you belong. And in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter who you are as much as whose you are, who you belong to. There's a poignant moment in Matthew 15 where Jesus laments, these people come near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, we know that David did not lead a totally blameless life, and he readily admits that in 
in other psalms. Yet the Bible describes him as a man who is a man after God's own heart. And this is because he loved God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength. And whenever he sinned, he repented and he demonstrated that broken and contrite spirit. You may be puzzled by the fact that uh, in our reading, uh, it begins, our reading begins with David claiming that there's no falsehood in him. Now, most commentators believe that David was still very young at the time he wrote this, and that he was talking only about his blamelessness uh, with regard to his relationship and his dealings with King Saul, where he had really done nothing wrong. David invites God to test his heart. David says repeatedly in various contexts, he said, search my heart and put it straight, and if I've gone off the path, set me right. And it occurs to me that this should be our prayer too, that at such times, for instance, when we come to the confession in church, that we ask God to search our hearts. Not that God doesn't already know our hearts, but in asking him to search our hearts, we search them too and we become conscious of where we fall short. But what about the clean mind, which is the second one? A clean heart will ensure, as I've already said, that you have a clean mind. In our text, David says that he does not want to have a mindset like those who crave after wealth, who pile up wealth, and who seek their reward in this life. That does not mean that he writes off all the good things of life, but only that he sees everything in this world as transient, as temporary, and that he seeks joys that will never end, joys that will last forever. And he, that's why he says, in righteousness I shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing you, seeing your likeness. Yeah, sort of a preemption, a pre, pre, it's, a, it's a prediction of the resurrection, but it's also a daily desire that he has. And our thought life matters to God. How you fill your mind, what you put in your mind, affects the relationship that you have with him. What you read, what you watch, what you you listen to, even the computer games you play, all occupy your thoughts and fill your mind and will undoubtedly affect how you speak and how you act. And that is why those who really seek to live as sons and daughters of God, shy away from certain types of entertainment. For men, for example, that may mean staying well clear of pornography, which starts maybe as an idle curiosity and quickly becomes a huge problem that messes with your brain, which affects your relationships with others and destroys your prayer life. Needless to say, God doesn't expect us to banish all forms of entertainment from our lives. And what he does want us to do, however, is that we avoid filling our minds with things that will harm us and that will block our relationship with him. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the believers in that great metropolis of Rome, writes, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will.
And writing to believers in the young church at Philippi, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. And so we come to the clean lips In verse 3, David says, I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. And for many Christians, including me, uh, the sinless speech uh, has been the last frontier to conquer. Often when we've overcome many other sins in our lives, uh, we go on sinning with our lips. Speech is one of God's great blessings. With our mouths, we uh, form relationships, we build one another up, we, we, um, we show affection, and with those same lips, we curse and we tell lies and we gossip and we misuse the name of Jesus and swear. And both the Old and the New Testament have a great deal to say about our mouths, about the, our speech, our lips. Uh, Proverbs 13 says, he who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. And Proverbs 10 says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. An often quoted New Testament verse about clean lips is found in the letter of James. He, He gives a long thing where he says, all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and creatures we are being tamed but we have, uh, have been tamed by mankind, but no human being has yet been able to ta- tame the tongue. It is restless evil full of deadly poison. I, I was thinking of an unclean lip problem that I had to overcome in my own life, and that was negative humor. Now, so much of our so-called British sense of humor is based on putting other people down, isn't it? And so we, and for much of my life, some of my funniest and best jokes were consisted of taking the mickey out of, out of someone or some, some other person, friends, sometimes friends or relatives. I will give you an example, because if I tell you the example, you'll remember the joke and forget the serious point that I'm trying to make. But one day, one day a Christian friend approached me and showed me how very destructive negative humor can be. Now, you may raise a laugh with your negative joke at someone else's expense, but at the same time, that victim, that person that you're joking about is dying inside. And I, I, I decided from that moment on, when I realized that, that my lips were unclean and that I was from now on avoid jokes at somebody else's expense. Finally, what about clean hands? Well, that basically means keeping the commandments, doesn't it? God gave us his commandments not to make our life difficult, but for our welfare and for our protection. And it is at our peril that we turn our backs on the commandments. We have already touched on sins of the heart and the mind and the lips. David is focusing on his, pain, on his sinful actions. And he says, you know, my steps 
have held to your paths. My feet have not slipped. This is the danger, that we slip off the path, isn't it? Uh, You know the the story of Saul's persecution of David. Um, If you read the first book of Samuel, you will remember that David had more than one opportunity to kill Saul. He could have killed him and got away with it. But he refrained from doing that because he, and he spared Paul's, uh, Saul's life, even though Saul was continuing in his attempts to do away with David. When we're in distress and when we've suffered, particularly at the hands of others, it's, it's very tempting to take any opportunity we can to get back at them. Revenge may seem very sweet at the time, but almost invariably it makes our lives more bitter in the end. Acts of reprisal usually damage the perpetrator as much as the victim. And David knows this, and he puts in the psalm, he puts his trust in God. God will vindicate him. And in fact, that's exactly what God did. All sin separates us from God and from others. Isolated sins often become sinful patterns, sinful lifestyles. Sin has a way of taking control of our lives. Uh, Taking control of our lives when God should be in control. In good times and in bad times, God wants us to repent of our past wrongdoings and turn away from sin and and form new habits, new ways of being. Psalm 19 says, Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they never rule over me. May sin not rule over me. I will be blameless, it says, says King David. But in closing, I want us to just <coughs> try to answer two questions. The first is, does God hear the prayers of those who love him and have clean hearts, minds, and lips? And if so, how does he answer them? And the second question is, does God answer the prayers of those who don't love him and don't have clean lips and hearts and uh, minds and and hands? Well, one answer to the first question is that God is sovereign. And he answers our prayers in the way that he sees fit. He knows better than we know ourselves. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what's best for us. And that means that sometimes he will give us exactly what we've asked for, particularly if our hearts and minds are well attuned to his will and his plan for our lives. At other times, he will answer our prayers rather obliquely in ways that we don't really expect. You may be familiar with uh, the the I Asked God and He Gave Me um, poem. It reads, I asked God for strength and God gave me difficulties to make me strong. I asked for wisdom, and God gave me problems to solve. I asked for prosperity, and God gave me a brain and brawn to work. I asked for courage, and God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love, and God gave me people to help. I asked for favors, and God gave me opportunities. I received nothing I wanted, and I received everything I needed. But what about the prayers of sinners? Does God answer those? Well, that's our second question, isn't it? Does God hear the prayers of those 
with unclean hearts, unclean lips, minds, and hands. Scripture clearly states that there are categories of people, whole categories of people, in fact, 15 categories I counted, of people that, whose prayers God never answers. And the Bible lists these categories. I'll, I'll just quote you five of them, I think. The first is God doesn't answer the prayers of those with selfish motives. He doesn't answer the prayers of those who persist in sinful lifestyles. He doesn't answer the prayers of those who know his law but reject it and turn their backs on it. He doesn't answer the prayers of the proud. I haven't got time to go through the whole list here or to give you the references, but if you're really interested, I've got a whole list with biblical references that I can let you have after the service. The point that needs making is that if we really study all the categories of people whose prayers God doesn't hear and doesn't respond to, we'll see that most of us, actually, none of us, actually deserves to have his or her prayers heard. Because to a greater or lesser extent, we all fall into one of the categories of those uh, whose prayers God doesn't hear. And so that puts us in a bit of a dilemma and a pickle, doesn't it? So why... You know, no one has clean hearts, clean lips, completely. None of us are squeaky clean. And the Bible says, in fact, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You'll find that in Romans chapter 3. And I've looked up the meaning of all, and it does really mean all, even in the original languages. No one is exempt from sin. So what's the point of praying? The answer is hidden in verse 7 of our, of our psalm, where David says, Show the wonder of your great works. Show, show me the wonder of your great love. Now, in most other versions of the Bible, the, the wonders of God's great love is translated as God's loving kindness. It occurs throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament and speaks of what I, I think of as God's super love. It's a love that's greater than any kind of love that we can experience here on earth among human beings. God saw humanity crying out to him in all their sinfulness and distress, and he demonstrated his super love, his loving kindness, as the Bible calls it. And he devised a plan that would somehow close the gap between who we are and who God wants us to be and needs us to be in order to be close to him and live with him. He sent himself in the form of his own dear son, Jesus. God, made us, God was made flesh and to show us how to live with clean hearts and clean minds and clean lips and clean hands. And Jesus, even though I'll never really ever get my head around it, died in order to close the gap to ensure that we would no longer be separated from God by our sins. God's super love for us is embodied in the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And most of us stop there and don't go on to read the next two verses, verses Three, uh, John 3:17 3, and 18, 
which, where Jesus goes on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. So there is no real simple yes or no answer to our question about whether God hears the prayers of those who have unclean hearts and minds and lips and hands. Do they have their prayers heard? Well, we're not the ones to judge. The hearts and minds of others can only be judged really by God. He can do that. What we do know is that when we believe and trust in God and cry out to him, we can trust that he will hear our prayer. And when we invite his son, Jesus Christ, into our lives, we know that he will unlock the prison cells that we've made for ourselves. He will give us the strength to turn our backs on our former lives. And his Holy Spirit will help us day to day to live with clean hearts and clean minds and clean lips and clean hands. Kept clean not in order to be worthy of salvation, but clean because we have already experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen.